Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. You are now on the podcast Research Lives and Cultures, and I am Sandrine Soum, your host. And today I have the pleasure to have with me Robin Morton, who comes from Edinburgh. He works at the Center for Regenerative Medicine in the Institute for Regeneration and Repair at the University of Edinburgh. And Robin works as a science communication manager and he has previous experiences working in the research environment. I felt that his experience uh, of working in the area of research communication was an interesting topic to share with many of our listeners. So to get us started, Robin, could you tell us a little bit about your, your career so far, a brief overview of your path? So I trained as a research scientist. I did an undergraduate degree in biochemistry pharmacology, PhD in neuroscience, and then I did one, one postdoc looking at learning and memory. From there, I had a real decision to make between carrying in academia and moving into industry. And I, I chose to jump into industry for a few years. So I, I think I spent um, about four or five years working in the pharmaceutical industry. And from there, I actually came back into university, but this time as a, as a project manager. And in that project management role, I, I dealt with a lot of different aspects of, it was managing a, a human genetics project. So anything from business development, interacting with industry, uh, dealing with participants, running the study, really all different aspects of that. But one of those things was communications. And uh, over the years, I've, I've gradually developed my science communication skills and the job before my current job uh, really kind of cemented that. So my current job in communi science communication manager at the Centre for Agenda Medicine, I, I joined the centre five years ago. And uh, it, that was my first full-time role as a communications manager. And then just at the start of this year, I got the opportunity to jump back into project management. Um, uh, managing the UK RMP Engineered Cell Environment Hub. And it's nice now to have that, that mix of both the communications and uh, project management. Can I take a step back in your career and at the point when you were uh, doing a postdoc, what was your approach to making a decision into deciding what type of postdoc to, to do? And then at the end of that, What made you decide to towards industry? What were the elements that meant that you said, well, actually, I'm not going to follow the academic track. I'm going to try something else. I, th I think the I think the context of this is I took a year out between third and fourth year at university and I worked for Glaxo in the pharma industry. It was an academic institute, but it was it was very much about research and development of new drugs. And that really changed my outlook completely. I, I loved the work. It made me want to pursue a career initially in industry. And, but then at the point it came to doing a PhD, I was like, no, well, I'll, I'll, I'll persevere and go for a PhD. I think as a result of that year, I, I did better in my degree. I did better in my PhD and then kind of really got kind of hooked into academia and thought, no, actually, maybe, maybe there's a possibility I could. I could do similar things, but in an academic environment. But then it was that crunch moment of the end of the first postdoc where I was going, okay, got some reasonable publications here. 
no nature papers, unfortunately, but, you know, journal of physiology, things. I also, to give you a bit of context, I did struggle a bit with the public presentation of the research to other researchers. And I didn't have that kind of encyclopedic knowledge that some scientists seem to have where they could just draw information out of the air about this paper and that paper. So I think at that point I felt, yeah, I think I could do well, but I'm not quite sure that I'll really make a success of academia. But I really felt that I could I could make a difference and you know make a make a go at industry. So at that point, yeah, it was it was a really hard decision. Literally, the salaries at that point were were no different. They were working in very similar places. So I jumped into industry just to get that to develop that skill set and get that experience. It was actually a graduate role, even though I was a postdoc, but I just wanted to really build up that that understanding and experience of R&D in industry. That's interesting what you're saying, actually, in, in terms of the entry point in industry. And that's oft, often something that PhD graduates and postdocs, when they're considering entering industry, are not quite sure where they land. So actually, sometimes you may not get to a role that is a senior role and you have to almost take a step back. What do you think was important in the way that you you portrayed your competencies at that point to be recruited? Because I've had, I mean, I've interviewed a lot of, and I've worked as a coach with a lot of postdocs and PhD students who find it very hard to articulate their competencies for this transition into, you know, industrial position. I, I honestly think it was about how I communicated my research experience, how I, how I talked about science and how I interacted with the people in the room. There were, I think there were, I think there were nine of us in the room for the interview around the table. And how was it different from an academic interview? It was different probably in that they were more broadly focused in my skills, in my interests, and maybe less so on, on my knowledge of, of, of detailed papers. So in a way, it's almost like communication was almost like uh, an important element even at the point of transition in the way that you were able to just talk about things to engage in the context of that interview? I think so. And I th thinking back to kind of lab group meetings in industry, it was, it was very much, it was, it was very much a kind of team approach. It wasn't, look at me, here's my amazing research. It was, look what we have and what, what contributes to our project. And, and I guess, how is this driving the aims of the company along rather than, I guess, trying to stand up and defend uh, perhaps more niche science? I don't know. It's something that for a lot of researchers who have not quite made up their mind yet whether they want to move into industry or not, the idea actually of not just working for yourself in terms of, you know, this is my research and I'm doing stuff for myself, for my career and so on. To start in, I mean, although you should have that when you're working in a research group, but often it's maybe it's not something that people feel deeply enough. But when you start working in industry, it's about, you know, the aims of the business and, you know, what needs to achieve for the business less than, you know, things that needs to be achieved for your own career progression as such. How was it to actually transition in industry and have that shift of it's it's less about the, the results that are just for your own stuff that actually results for you know for the company and so on? 
in, in my case, it was an it was, although it was industry, it was an academic uh, crossover. It, it was an academic institute, the um, Novartis Institute at, at UCL in London. I think they had a slightly less focused approach. You're perhaps a bit more blue sky R and D than 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 the kind of drug development programs. I was developing a model to look at um, gut pain. And so in a sense, that felt like my own project. But, but very much the results of that were really to help to support a drug that had recently gone on the market, but the, the mechanism of action wasn't all that clear. You know, so it's, I guess the reward as a scientist was, yeah, he, you know, we've developed, developed this model, but equally that, this is contributing to the success of the company, that the, the group as a whole. So I'd like to, to move a little bit uh, to the work that you are currently doing as a um, research communication manager. How did you actually get started in, in research communication? Uh, what were your first experiences of communicating research? So laterally in industry, I was working in contract research and there we were working with industry clients. And so really it was very much about communicating with those clients and understanding what they needed and then hopefully giving them what they wanted and communicating that well by conducting good studies, good preclinical studies. I think that that was my first uh, sort of, the moment that I first thought, oh, actually, I'm not just a scientist who does stuff in a lab. I am capable of communicating what I do and communicating hopefully effectively. So from there, I went into academia as project manager. But there it was really very much kind of developing that skill of communicating what we were doing. Uh, we were recruiting people to a human genetics project. Uh, we had to be clear about what we wanted to do, even though it was quite a complex study. And we had to use plain English, but still retain you know, the truth of it, the, the, you know, not, not, not in any way dumbing down the, the, the science. So that really was my introduction to science communication was through necessity, through this trying to communicate with potential research participants to recruit them into the study uh, and being open and clear about what we wanted to do with, with their samples and data. What did you learn about research communication? in terms of really engaging people? Because there is, um, often I talk about that in workshops, you know, this idea of, you know, a one way where you're just providing information to the shift towards, a, you know, a dialogue way of, of research communication. What do you think that you learned yourself of, you know, what it really takes to engage? In that role, uh, we had social scientists on the project and, and I, I think they really made me think about that dialogue, that two-way communication. Um, not that I would have necessarily thought about it in that way at that time. And that idea that we are not just telling these people what we're going to do with their samples and data. Um, we should be listening to their concerns about what might happen to the samples and data and responding in the way that we design that study and the information that we give them. Um, so yes, there was there was definitely a dialogue there, and that was very much driven by the social scientists and the needs of the of the study itself. 
I mean, other people create divisions between different forms of communication, which sometimes vexes me. So there's public and patient involvement. There's what people would call public engagement, uh, meaning engaging with schools or media engagement, dealing with the press, television, whatever. And then at the kind of the, the more refined end of the spectrum, you might have that dialogic engagement where you're actually maybe engaging with the people who might benefit from the research down the line, listening to what they say about what you're doing, and then maybe actually altering the way that you design your research as, as a result. So, yes, people do delineate between them, but there is commonality. And really, ultimately, it's about what's your audience, what's your message, communicating clearly and being open to, to listening. It's a really important element, the, the listening, but also being prepared to change your mind, to listen and, you know, change your study. Have you experienced yourself a context where actually, you know, the two-way dialogue was actually taking place, where there was a real engagement, where actually you, you, you may have changed your mind? So the short answer is yes. I, I worked on a, a, a project where listening definitely changed the way that project was run. I've also seen the opposite. There was an advisory group to a particular project that I won't name, uh, and their mantra was nothing about us without us. And they were involved in this project for a number of years. And then at the, the meeting to close the project, it was a bit of a fanfare, or there was a minister there, and they basically stood up and said, look, you didn't listen. And yeah, that's that's devastating. That's, that's, that's very difficult. Now, where I've seen it, very positively is I used to work with the director of the Lothian Birth Cohort Studies in Edinburgh, groups of older people who all sat the same intelligence test age 11, uh, now in their 80s and 90s. And uh, Professor Ian Deary, uh, who, who directed that study, just naturally, he, he, he spoke to his participants at the end of each three-year cycle of, of funding and of results the first people to hear the results of that study were the participants themselves before it was published in, in, in some cases and certainly before the media got to hear about it. And six years in, so the, the second reunion of research participants in that study, one of them put up their hand and said, why aren't you collecting our brains? This was a study of the ageing brain. And the researcher was slightly taken aback, of course, brain material would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But they'd felt that this was too much, too much to ask. But actually that research participant and many, many others went on to prove that they were willing to donate brain material after they died. And so within, I think, with on the third or fourth round of funding, they got the ethics, they got the process to get together and brain donation is now part of the Lothian Birth Cohort Studies. So that's a direct example. It's a bit simpler because it's a study of ageing and it's got older people who are participants. So it's a bit harder to imagine if you're doing a, a study of a molecule or a receptor or, or a pathway in the, in the brain. But I think that there are things that one can think about in terms of how you design your work, almost no matter what, uh, what it is. Oh, that's really interesting. One of the challenges, obviously, for researchers is that they are told that they should engage the public, you know, do outreach, do this, that, and the other. And with the research excellence framework, you need to submit some of the impact that you've had. And, you know, engaging the public is part of that. And when you are still 
you know, early on in your in your research career, it's very hard to know, you know, how to invest your time and how to be strategic in terms of, you know, the type of research communication that you ought to be doing. And this balance between doing stuff just for the fun of it, because you enjoy doing it, and investing time in research communication activities that really may pay off, it's really difficult. So when you're working closely with people making suggestions about the type of communication strategy they may have for their research, what's your approach to supporting people? What sort of advice do you give them? I'd say it really depends on the personality of of the researcher. I think my advice is to start small and do what you're comfortable with. Ultimately, you need to think about your audience. Always think about your audience. You know, if, if, if you're studying leukemia, who, who's your audience? Well, it's patients, families of patients, it's clinicians, it's policymakers potentially. Now, you probably don't, as a young researcher, want to go straight into the Scottish Parliament or the UK Parliament and march up to an an MSP or an MP and start talking about your research. But I think the act of communicating, almost no matter the audience, um, helps you build up that confidence in your own ability as a communicator. Also, it shows you what people value in that that kind of communication. So, but I've got some great examples of where, where a PhD student has come up with a project, I've worked with them to develop it, and it's been a just a, a really nice example of dialogue and that actually there was benefit on both sides in terms of the way in that case it was patients living with multiple sclerosis or people living with multiple sclerosis and, and MS researchers. So um, both sides benefited in terms of you know, understanding of the condition, motivation, and in the case of people suffering uh, or living with MS, just a feeling that they'd gained from the experience just by under, hearing a little bit more about, about the research that's going on, how hard it is, how uh, how it takes years to, to advance. But just knowing that there are human beings working on this uh, in the background, it gives them some hope. Even if it won't uh, improve their life in, in the short term, it gives them hope. Um, so yeah, I think that's it. You start small and you do what you're comfortable with. And over time, you'll learn, hopefully work with comms professionals as well. Uh, and over time, you'll learn what works and what you're good at um, and how both you and hopefully your audience can benefit from those interactions. Is there a way of being strategic in you know deciding the type of opportunity to take? Because uh, again, that's something that I often repeat with researchers is that, you know, going from your comfort zone to actually doing something that will create more exposure because you could just be staying in your comfort zone. You know, if you're happy doing workshop in a primary school, you could always be doing that. But in terms of the impact for your own career and what maybe, and again, you know, it's depending on what you want to do next, there isn't a set path, but how can people make make a decision on knowing, am I just staying in my bubble of comfort or am I really stretching myself of creating an impact in the type of research communication uh, strategies that, that, that I'm taking? In terms of being strategic, it's just that. And, and you know, you will see this in, in grant applications, although things have changed recently, but how are you going to reach your audience? You know, who's going to benefit from this research? How are you going to reach that audience? What are you going to do to reach that audience? These are very good questions. And 
And if you answer those questions truthfully and honestly, and you have a bit of skill in those areas, then you're on to a good start. In terms of stretching yourself, yes, absolutely stretch yourself, but listen to feedback. You know, not everyone should speak to the media, for example, because uh, some people just have a real knack for it. Some people can learn it and some people just will never, ever be comfortable doing that kind of communication. And you, you should listen to that uh, either feedback or that voice inside your head that's, that's telling you. Unfortunately, with things like that, where you are out, out with your comfort zone, the, the overwhelming noise is usually, no, I can't do this. But actually, the more you try it, the more you practice it. If you uh, grab media training, I would always encourage uh, early career researchers to, to go and do media training and um, experience what it's like to be interviewed in the radio, experience what it's like to be interviewed on television or by a journalist. And yes, it's uncomfortable, but you can discover a lot about your own abilities and also improve on how you react to that kind of situation. So in in sort of the sort of examples of research communication activity that you've either been involved in or observed, do you have some example of things that you've seen been very impactful? So, I mean, you, you mentioned a PhD student working on multiple sclerosis. Do you have other examples where it's really made an impact on their career or the next step that they've taken or the exposure that they, they gained? Yeah, it's, that, that's, it's a difficult one because sometimes impact, and choose your definition of impact there, but sometimes impact can take years. My sort of mantra is that just because something doesn't have an impact within the lifetime of a grant doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. So yes, you want things that will have more of a chance of achieving some impact of your research. In terms of things that I've seen and seen done, done well, so I worked with a, a young researcher on that ageing project. An opportunity came up to do something called the Cabaret of Dangerous Ideas. And I let him know about it because I knew he at heart he was a performer and long story short over three years at the Edinburgh Festival he stood up doing a spoken word show about the aging brain and he he did extremely well you know that the work was conveyed in an engaging way it was entertaining it was informative and it was reaching definitely reaching audiences that wouldn't otherwise have engaged in science. Now, no, not everyone needs to be a performer. I mean, you can do stand-up comedy about your, your research if you, if you really want to, but but that's it doesn't have to be a performance. That same researcher went on to set up something called Research the Headlines, which was kind of combating the, the kind of misinformation of the social media world. And so working with school pupils to develop their analytical skills in terms of interpreting a newspaper report about some science and so they would look at the they would look at a, a research paper they would look at the headlines that resulted from that research paper and then they would discuss you know where things had, had gone awry if if or if they'd gone awry and those are kind of two almost extreme examples of different ways of of, of approaching research communication that researchers won prizes for his communication work. He's now an assistant professor at the University of Edinburgh. Yeah, he's, he's doing well in his research career. 
Mm. It's an example where actually future citizens, you know, if you're working with young people, actually perceive science and are able to be critical of what they see in the media. So it's ed educational to prepare people to, to be more analytical in the way they're perceiving information. It ought to be done systematically in school, but it's clearly not. Yeah, yeah. And you know, that won't work for every young person, but... I think yeah, and we've done that in, in in with other with other initiatives where we're encouraging people to question what they see uh, on social media uh, or or in or in newspapers. The specific example of a PhD student who developed an art workshop where both people living with MS and scientists studying MS worked on artwork together. And this was to break down that potentially perceived power relationship between the person living with the condition and the scientist. And they just naturally, as they were producing these artworks, talked. And they talked about the condition, they talked about other things. And the two things that stick out from that project, one was the overwhelmingly positive response from the researchers, who all felt that they'd gained more understanding about the condition and the lives of the people who live with that condition, but also came away motivated, uh, re-energised to continue and, 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 and drive towards research that will benefit those, those people. But the second thing that came out of it was one of those research participants that said to me, I came along expecting to be giving and not really getting anything back, but I've come away feeling that I've benefited just from the interactions, just from meeting the scientists, just from understanding a little bit more about research and how it happens and, and, and the people involved in that research, that they're human beings and that they don't all wear lab coats all the time and, uh, and that they're very different individuals. So there was, there was definite dialogue there. There was definite uh, benefit to both sides. Uh, I really, it was a really nice project. And I like the idea of thinking about, you know, as, as a research scientist, it can be so hard to get to, to be progressing in your project. And, you know, when you see sometimes a project just not shifting at all and finding a way of re feeling re-energized, which is the term that you use, and using, you know, the exposure to, to patient or to the real context of the problem you're trying to solve is trying to address and finding a way to be re-energized, to work really hard on whatever problematic you have through the reality of what this work is about, I, I think is a really nice way of thinking about research communication. And, and yes, there are projects where this kind of endpoint and user and so on is much further down, but in a way it's kind of anchoring whatever research project to the reality of what this is about is, is really, really important because it can feel like, you know, People will say, well, I just do basic research, but it's never really about just basic research. It's always anchored in a, in a, problem, a, a problem you're trying to address that affects someone in some ways. And I feel that a lot of researchers forget that and kind of are drowned in just the, the technicalities of the research itself. I, I hear a lot of people saying, well, why, why should, you know, I, I don't have anything to say. You know, we're still we're so early on in this research process. What I do won't benefit. But I think giving those individuals a realistic expectation of what research can achieve in the next 10 to 15 to 20 years is a good thing. 
that's that's empowering those people. It's giving them the information. It's giving them the the, the way to think about their condition and and research that's done on it, and that's empowering for them. So, in in your role as a communication manager, so you worked with many senior research leaders. How do you see the impact of being able to communicate well your research? So, you know, you have, you must be advising, you know, senior academic and so on, on how they should they should go about doing their research communication. So what what is your approach to working with them? Because they, they may come to you, you know, when they're developing a project, say, oh, I, you know, I need to do that thing, you know, the impact thing or whatever, you know, whatever the, the grant is asking. And some people engage really, really well in it and not everybody is necessarily interested so how do you approach in a way almost like reshaping the way maybe people think about research communication so that they come at it not from a point of um, that's a requirement but from a perspective of you know how can this be useful or how can I do a good contribution? So I, th I think there's actually two questions there. <laughs> yeah, there are many questions. <laughs> so I think the first question is senior research leaders and their approach to communicating science. And, and, and there are some very, very senior people who are incredibly gifted in communicating their science to many different audiences. And then there are very, very senior and accomplished scientists who are not, not great at communicating uh, at that level, making no judgments. There are some really successful scientists I can think of who've really reached the top of their game in academia and beyond, I think because they can pitch an idea very succinctly, very clearly. And I, I hesitate to say simply because people think of simplicity as taking away from the science. No, I mean with clarity. Now, that could be to a funding agency. It could be to senior colleagues. It could be to a potential research donor charity. And charities follow themselves to have a really good communicator who's also a great scientist and to be able to talk to their donors and tell them what's possible. And actually, that could be at any stage in your career. You could be applying for a postdoc with, with a charity or, or charitable funding. If if you can communicate your ideas really, really clearly, that charity will potentially make much more money. <laughs> so and and there'll be more there'll be more funding to go around. So um, I don't think it's just the really senior leadership. In terms of whether uh, research engagement is box ticking or whether it's really substantively contributing to a project. So the the research funding. Councils, obviously, they started to in implement the, the impact statements and the impact plans. And, and th the driver for that was obviously to get researchers to think more seriously about engagement. In the end, both at a university level and at a funding agency level, I think that slightly fell short because ultimately, if you need to cut something from your research, then you might not cut the really solid bit of science in the middle you might cut that engagement side and also ultimately you these funding uh, bodies are, are are using other scientists to assess research and if if they don't value that engagement aspect then it's not going to get through no matter what the 
the, the regulations say. An example in Edinburgh where this has been embedded in or attempting to embed this in the research culture, there's a new PhD studentship in Edinburgh where there's a, a substantive public engagement element to it. But it's focused on research impact. It's not just engagement for engagement's sake. And so those PhD students are getting training in communication and being encouraged to think about the beneficiaries of their research and engaging and how engaging can benefit their research. In addition to that, it's now in the promotional criteria and the annual review criteria for academic posts. But again, that's dependent on the individuals who administer that process, who are academics, who may or may not necessarily buy into the idea that engagement is important. In your own role, you know, as a research communication specialist, if you're working with academics who are not necessarily very positive, but know that they have to do that thing, what is your own approach to get them to think about it in a different way so that they can have a sense of what actually can come as a positive thing out of doing the research communication? So that's an interesting question. How, to, how do you motivate the skeptics? I think there's two, I think there's two approaches. Uh, one is you don't. And you either provide that support as a professional communicator to help them translate their research. Uh, the other is that you look for ways in which that researcher would feel comfortable and see the benefit from engaging. Now, that could be as simple as thinking of, well, who's your, who are your beneficiaries? How will they benefit from this research? And therefore, one, how are you going to engage with them? And two, how will you then translate that engagement into impact? So that that's that's fine. And that, that ultimately is my response when people come to me and say, can you send me the paragraph that I need to include in this section? Which is, I mean, that's so many people say that. And of course... My next question is, well, what's the project about? <laughs> because they mm, won't even of course, yeah. necessarily tell me that. Once I know a little bit about what the project's about, I can th- start to think, well, who's the beneficiaries? Is it is it is it patients with um, this condition, or is it clinicians, or is it actually ultimately this research is potentially in the short term only benefit the research community by pushing the knowledge forward, uh, providing new tools and techniques. For others to use but then in the future that could have benefit in these following ways so i guess that's my approach is to try and kind of take it back to first principles and think well what can be achieved and and how but fundamentally it, your researchers have a lot of pressures and they may be disinclined for a number of reasons one is lack of confidence or um that that they'll never particularly be a great communicator but another is that, that they have other pressures in terms of teaching, workload in terms of applying for, for funding and, and, and managing managing a lab, managing students, managing uh, postdocs and, and other responsibilities in academia. So it, it's the, there's lots of different reasons why somebody might not want to do this work. It's not just that they don't know or, or don't care. What will be a quick win for, let's say, a new PI who, you know, is trying to build their research group, is starting to lecture, is trying to get their first grants to actually find a way of doing research communication in a way that is, I would not maybe saying easy is not the right word, but 
in a way that it's manageable and, and impactful, but at the same time doesn't take too much time. Sure. Well, from a, from a standing start, if you work with blood, speak to the charities that deal with blood conditions, develop those contacts. Sometimes it can lead to, to funding. Sometimes it can just lead to conversations and contact and further contacts. Start small and try things out. I think is the is the way to to look at it. And um, you know, if you do if you do one thing in a year, see how that goes. Or, I guess in in terms of a practical thing to do, come and speak to somebody like me. Go and speak to a communicate science communicator, because it's always, of course, much harder to start somebody from scratch. But if you can buy into something that's existing. So, for example, we have a skills work experience program that we run every year with an hour and a half, two hours work. A researcher can get to speak to a group of very, very motivated 17-year-olds who are thinking about studying science. Okay, that's something small that can be achieved. The other thing is, if you're, if you're that way inclined, um, a lot of people use social media first and foremost, usually to communicate with other scientists, but it doesn't need to exclusively be that. But again, you can contribute by writing a blog to something that has got a wide audience or write an article or do a podcast or, you know, so, so that you're not burdened with having to do all the work. <laughs> I think the other thing is to get trained. I've already mentioned media training. Go and do a media training course. It's probably half a day, but it will stand you in good stead and perhaps give you that confidence. So when you get your good results, I, I, I used to work a lot with Age UK and their head of knowledge exchange said to me, never let the first time you speak to your audience be when you've got your big result. You've got to have spoken to them five years before, three years before, two years before. One of the questions that I had for you is what makes research communication fail? Lack of focus makes re research communication fail. Not really thinking about who your audience actually is. Uh, if you try and communicate with too many different audiences at once, you will fail because it's not pitched at the right level for one or other of those audiences. And uh, I guess going back to actually what is your message? Um, your message is not your research result. Your message is why is that relevant to those people? I used to organize a lot of media training and one of the fear when, you know, people were thinking about talking to journalists, they, they were already seeing the crazy headlines that may come out of, you know, a really bad interview and so on. And for, for some, some people that was, it created limiting beliefs of wanting to engage with the media. So, you know, in your experience, what's the worst that can happen? For me, actually, the worst that can happen is that you go to a lot of effort And because you haven't thought about your audience and your message, you you try to communicate and people go away confused. I always try to think no matter what is being done, as long as you're clear about what relatively straightforward message is core to this activity, that's what you have to get across to those, those, that, that group, one of those individuals. And how do you go over that? is focusing in on who your audience is and what your message is. Fundamentally, the best you can thing you can do is think, well, how is this piece of research relevant to this individual or to society? Because that individual 
might not be affected directly by it, but they might see why this research could benefit society as a whole. The big thing about GM was that engagement didn't happen up front. And had there been more engagement up front, society as a whole would potentially have been more prepared. I'm sure there would have been opposition, but society as a whole would have been potentially been more prepared. There'd been less, potentially less information if there'd been more proactive engagement. It's, it's funny you referring to that because I, I used to run a module on public engagement to, for PhD students many, many years ago. And I was always starting the module talking about how badly the, the scientific community had dealt with engaging about GM. And in a way, it was almost like the starting point of getting us to actually understand why it matters so much to actually engage with people early on. And not when you've done all this amazing science, but then people say, well, actually, we don't want that. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the sort of upstream engagement, how, how important it is in, and, and true openness in, in dialogue instead of just we're going to tell you what, what we want you to know and just a one way thing. And, and, and thinking about it now in the way people perceive issues to do with the COVID vaccines, where, you know, thinking about the, the way the media, for example, portrayed the AstraZeneca vaccine in countries like my home country in France, and the way people are now perceiving it and refusing the vaccine, and the, the role, you know, the role, role of communication in that context and, and the massive impact that it has. And then when people are sort of set in their views, they're not prepared to budge. So early, early engagement and early discussion really, really matters a great deal in, in the long term. Because okay. you may have the best vaccine in the world, but if people have felt that they've not been listened or that they've, you know, things have been, been explained early on, and openly enough, with enough transparency, then people say, well, they're hiding something. And then conversation is not possible anymore. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the media, what's the worst that can happen? Again, when I was working with that ageing group, somebody was do, was looking at epigenetics in, in older age, and uh, the, the Daily Express headline was Secret to Longer Life Found. Now, obviously, that is nonsense. That has nothing, nothing to do with research. And I was really quite nervous about what the the senior scientist would think about that. And actually... He was okay. He'd been through enough media to know that people read the headline, they don't necessarily immediately believe it. And actually the article itself was pretty good. So often the you know this this whole headline thing can can put people off engaging with the media. But you know, you have to think that, well, front page of the express, a lot of people, if they got on to actually read the article, got to hear about that science. Quite mm. detailed science. So yeah. I, I think it's always it's funny because always knowing that the person who's written the headline is not the person who's written the article is a really important yeah. one and they serve very different purpose. No. So to finish off our discussion, Robin, I'll be interested to ask you, what would you tell your younger self about communicating your research and about your professional transition in the research environment? So this is easy for me because somebody else told me something when I was a first year PhD student and it's absolutely stayed with me throughout my career and is relevant, as relevant as a communications manager as, as, as it was as a PhD student and a researcher. So I was very lucky in my PhD project 
quite quickly we had some good results because my supervisor had some you know great ideas about what to pursue i wrote the results up i spent hours and hours in the figures and we went to practice the presentation that i was going to give to the physiological society it was five or ten minutes long i can't remember which and i practiced and practiced and i gave the talk in front of my supervisor and he kind of nodded and he said okay just you come and sit here and he went down to the front and he presented what i just presented and of course it was great it was fantastic and and i i was kind of sitting there feeling a bit crestfallen but that was the one bit of advice that he gave me which was robin tell a story tell a story about your research yeah put your figures up one to eight or whatever it was uh, and and you can explain what they show but what you need to be doing is tell a story. And then I gave the talk again, but telling it as a story. And that's every talk I've ever given since and any form of communication that I put together. It's about what's the story behind this? Because people intuitively understand the story. If you just throw information at them, it's uh, it's, it's it's very difficult for the brain to take in. I think I heard you talk about this on the course. <laughs> Absolutely. Story, uh, That's always my uh, anchor as well. You, yeah. Especially you're in Scotland, there's the tradition of the Kaylee, which is it's uh, music, it's stories, it's songs. And, you know, storytelling, that tradition of storytelling in Scotland is the way information was passed on from generation to, ge- to generation. And that's intuitively how, as humans, we, we interpret information. So, yeah, let's tell a story. In your the advice that you will give uh, researchers, you know, the, your top tips, you know, for, you know, good communication as a researcher. So storytelling will be, you know, will be one. What else will you tell people? I think I've said it a, f- a few times, but yeah, think about your audience. Who is your audience? What's important to them? Why is this research important to them? And is there a context that they're familiar with that you can capitalize on actually sometimes the story is do you know what this is really this is actually really hard to describe because it's so complex but actually that's that's telling that person something i'm telling you that i'm having trouble explaining this because it it really takes me a while to get my head around it and you've taken that fear away from that individual that they don't understand it because they're stupid and I really like that because also it's about removing the sort of hierarchy that people feel, you know, when, you know, I am the, you know, the lay person and here is the scientist, the researchers who knows it all. And actually saying, well, we're just human beings. We, we know different things and we understand the world through different lens. If you are a researcher struggling to share the complexities of your project, I like this way of saying, well, actually, it's really hard. <laughs> also, uh, fundamentally, Researchers think that opinion and emotion shouldn't come into their research, uh, but actually it's very powerful. For me, as a communicator, communicating research, if a researcher says, you know, this is incredible. I, I never thought this would happen. You know, I never thought this would be the result. I mean, that's captivating. That captures my attention when somebody says that. And you can start to see that they're passionate about what they're talking about. So, yeah, not being afraid to to share the human emotion part of it is is not a bad thing. I love that. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you.
I hope you've enjoyed the discussion I had with my guest. I'm very grateful that you've been listening to us. I hope that you will join me in the future podcast. I wish you a very good day. And if you want to contribute to the podcast, I'm very interested to hear from you as I'm always happy to, to invite some new interviewees on this podcast. So if you've got an interesting story about life in research and about the research environment, get in touch with me at sandrine at tesseldevelopment.com. Thank you.